0: Time for the Friday edition of Hancock and Kelly. You two belong together. John Hancock, Michael Kelly, on News Radio Eleven Twenty, KMOX.
1: Hey there. Happy New Year. It's Hancock and Kelly in for our last show Ever. of, the year. Oh, of no, the year. Just the last no. show of the year, John right. Hancock. Right. Um uh, that's John Hancock. I'm Michael Kelly. Uh you can hear us uh every Friday from eight thirty to what? Oh, 11 or so?
0: Yeah, but not today. Because the goat, today, the GOAT is coming back today. the greatest broadcaster, not saying something, yeah, ever produced is. here by the airwaves of KMOX in St. Louis, Charlie Brennan, will be back in Studio B from 10 o'clock until 1 o'clock today, hosting a show that will take you back in time to a kinder time, a gentler yes. time, Michael. Uh, no doubt about it. 1988, hey, I think, is when he started here. Exactly.
1: It's going to be great to see Charlie again. Uh, I know you hear him on the commercials, but uh, he'll be back to the same things. I can't wait to hear what he's up to on highway cleaning, planting bulbs, uh, donut making, and everything else that is Charlie Brennan, man. He does it all, doesn't he?
0: Yeah, I planted some bulbs once. Did uh, you? Yeah, the, the old light bulbs. You can't find them anymore.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: And I don't like these new, what do you call them? Things. The
1: LED lights? Yeah. Oh, they're the best.
0: Well, you know, it, it's, what's the government telling me what kind of light bulb I screw into the socket? I, you go. know, I like the old bulbs. You screw them right in there. They light up. They got the little, mm-hmm. what do you call them, thing in there. And, uh... Yep. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're one of those anti-progress people. So I planted some bulbs, and uh
1: I still... If were up to John Hancock, there'd be no cell phones. I don't like these phones that you can take in your pocket. I like it on the wall with a cord.
0: Well, no, I like the cell phones. I wish they were a You'll better like phone. You'll like the lights like this now. I, I promise don't know, man. you. You'll get there. I, I, the, the filaments. I like hey, filaments.
1: you can also see us Sunday morning. That'd yeah. be New Year's Eve before you go out and get all uh, happy for the new year. You can watch Hancock and Kelly. We're going to preview what we think is going to... To be happening in 2024 on Fox 2 in St. Louis at 8:30 with Andy Banker. Can't wait for that. Hey, and joining us in studio is a regular uh, guest here and sits in for me quite a bit. A frequent contributor. Yeah. <laughs> whenever I have uh, pressing needs out of town, yes. uh, we are joined Happens and someone sits a in, a much more uh, attractive and smarter uh, version of me. It's Megan Ma- Megan Shackelford. Hello, Megan. Good
2: morning. Hi.
1: Welcome. And you've brought a friend with you today?
2: I have brought uh, young Colin Huff.
1: Colin, Colin Huff. How old are you? 15. Where do you go to school?
3: Metro High School,
1: really? Mm-hmm. And uh, what what is a, if you're 15? Are you a junior?
3: I'm a sophomore.
1: You're a sophomore. Yeah. And what uh, what is it that you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a lawyer, the best one. You want to be the best the lawyer best in the lawyer. world?
3: Yeah.
0: Well, there you go.
1: Well, we're gonna pick his brain here in a little bit, John, because uh, one, you like to use uh, young people terms. You, I think the word you use is the ish.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh my.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a bit dated. <laughs> Maybe. So we're gonna visit with Colin Truly and find out. Um,
0: some latest I'm sure the kids are still saying the ish. I We're think that's from
2: out. when I was in high school, maybe. <laughs> it's John. Well, you are a kid. No, <laughs> I mean, no. We'll catch you over
0: there. We are also going to talk to
1: Mr. Colin about ChatGPT because uh, ChatGPT is everywhere. People say the world's falling apart because ChatGPT is taking over. I've never okay. used it. You've never used it. Megan, have you ever used ChatGPT? No, GPT? I haven't. Colin, have you used ChatGPT? many times. So you're going to have to teach us old fogies exactly what Chat GPT
0: is. Well, it's a thing. Yeah. You, you got the, you know, the chat out there. You, know, what? You, you tell it, you say, you know, do this and it right. does it.
1: We're going to get into that when we come back. But first, I want
0: to ask you, what are you doing for the new year? So uh, my lovely wife, Georgianne, and her father are uh, taking a little trip leaving today and going to Kansas City to visit the, their relatives over there. I have to stay home with Gus because mm-hmm. somebody's going to oh, take shucks. care of Gus. Yeah. And uh, so for New Year's Eve as a bachelor, I'm going to be going over to my daughter and son-in-law and granddaughter's house to bring in the new year. That's gonna be nice. You're gonna put some steaks on the grill and shrimp uh, on the Barbie. Shrimp on the Barbie,
1: and you're gonna you're gonna have some fun with the grandbaby. Yes, now she she's... won't be up till midnight banging pots and pans. No, no, she been, <laughs>
0: she'll probably stay up a little later on New Year's. Yeah, you know. And, Here's uh, the secret. Yeah.
1: Here's the secret. Turn on CNN, and about five hours before it happens here in London, you get It'd be six hours. You know, six hours. Yes. All right, in London you get New Year's. It's happening. You just pretend like it's New Year's here, and then you don't done. have to stay Six o'clock, up. Yeah.
0: Oh my goodness, wasn't that great, Tula? It's exactly what we're going to do.
1: Yep. Exactly they used to do that. My do. sisters used to do that to me when I was a little kid. Yeah. My parents would be out, and they'd say, you know, oh my gosh, it's happening! It's yeah. happening! Well, it was an it'll hour be dark early. Out. It'll yeah, be dark and they'd out. send me to bed. Yeah. And at midnight, they and their friends would be hanging out, there having go. a good time. Yeah. There See, you these go. are things you learn, Colin. You ever pulled that trick on somebody? No, no, no! Will you be up till midnight on New Year's? Yes. Where are you much going later. to a school party? Mm-hmm. Where's it at? I don't know. What do you mean? Was this going to be in the middle of a road? I was getting taken there. Oh, so. really? You're getting dropped off at a party for
0: New Year's? Mm-hmm. Boy, how life has changed! No
2: kidding. They don't make plans early. It's yeah. a very last minute. My, my parents discipline. used to drop
0: me off for parties and then change the locks. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Listen, no, no lie. I have a friend of mine. He's since passed. His name was Ray. Yeah. He went to Vietnam. Yeah. Comes back from Vietnam, his parents moved and didn't tell him. Oh, yeah. Could you imagine? Wow. They moved to a different place, so it was in the same neighborhood. But he knocks oh, on the so door. The <laughs> he town. knocks on the door, and yeah. the people are like, "No, your parents moved about four streets over." Could you imagine? You went to Vietnam, fought for your country, come home, knock on your parents' door, and no they're not there. there. Oh.
0: Well, I bet the dog was happy to see him. At least I <laughs> guess that,
1: that's a that's a miserable miserable story. Speaking of miserable, he's Michael Kelly. I'm Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy
3: We go where you go. 1120 a.m. 98.7 FM, KMOX.com.
1: Hey, that's John Hancock over there. He's the ish. I'm Michael Kelly. Would you call me terrible?
2: No. Miserable.
1: Miserable. Miserable. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't call you terrible, Kelly. I'd call you miserable. So, normally, if you're regular listeners on Friday, we do our political segment here, but we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. Because we've got Colonel McCausland coming in. Can't wait for that. He's actually going to be in studio with yes. Hancock & Kelly. Yes. We're going to visit with him after we get done with the Colonel. We'll do our political stuff. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk a little sports, and then we'll yeah, pass yeah, you yeah. off to the GOAT. But kind Charlie enough to Brown. join us in studio today, not only Megan Shackelford, who you all hear on a regular basis, is uh, Mr. Colin Huff, uh, who is a 15-year-old at, uh, what is it, City? Metro. Me- Metro High? Uh, Metro There's High sophomore. Yeah. He's yeah. a sophomore at Metro. Metro yes. high. And uh, John always uh, comes in and tells me uh, great uh, words that are that the
0: kids are using. Well, you got to keep up with the kids, Michael. Yeah. And uh, I try to do that. And so, uh, yeah.
1: So he calls himself, you know, hey, Kelly, you know I'm the ish. You said to me in the break.
3: I've never heard
0: anyone say that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, Colin, let me
0: tell you. You start throwing the ish around at high school and you will be Mr. Popular. Honestly, actually, like <laughs> it's a major
2: throwback to like the millennium time. Yeah. The early two thousands are wildly popular, Colin. So you actually might take this advice to school. Uh, I don't know.
1: Yeah, you, you may how? want to. And when you talk about throwback, John throws us back to the eighties. Can you imagine? Seventies. Yeah, the seventies. So, Mr. Colin Huff, uh, w- three words I hear used a lot by young people. One is "riz." What is "riz"?
3: So. It could be said as, like, a character trait, an energy, or like an attitude. It's short for charisma, but that's just, like, the formal version of it. Because it's, like, it's just the ability to attract others. So it would be, if Riz. I walked
1: up to a single gal that I saw out one night, I'd say, man, I really like your Riz.
3: No, because okay. that is not that would not be Riz. How you would, would you know. use Riz in a sentence? You wouldn't. Oh.
2: You would be described if, as having that.
3: Well, you talk, it's more of a thing you talk with your friends about, like, Yeah, I got, I got this, I got that. But naturally, if you go up to someone and say, hey, I have Riz, it's just not Riz know How it is? I st- I'm, I'm
1: th- th- that was as clear this. as mud
0: there, John. Yeah, I understand yeah. It. You yeah it's you a- don't have Riz, you have a purse if you're. Uh, <laughs> but Riz is is a is a state of mind.
2: It ah. is a state of mind. John just captured it perfectly, I wow. think, Todd. It's an attitude that you of project, course. and people know you have it or you don't. That's right. Yeah. Yes.
0: All right. What about to have it? You have oh, you it? got Riz all yeah. over. The yeah, place. I think
1: do we all have Riz in here. I don't don't know.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's too early to tell. What
1: what about bet? Does that mean, like, that's another word
3: that I hear my nieces and nephews using? What does it mean? Bet refers to the future because it's what you're going to do. If someone is like, if someone is like, hey, let's go to this cool abandoned building and you're like, bet. But if you're like, oh, let's go to this abandoned building and someone's like, no, that's just not bet. You know,
2: bet is a confirmation a way of saying yes, yes. we're going. But it means something cooler to them than the rest of us. Are you following? You, uh, I'm you right, right there with
0: you. You're supposed to say bet. Oh, bet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> bet. I got a <laughs> bet. Right. I've been It asked doesn't have the uh,
2: same appeal when older people use it. Colin's dad attempts to use bet, and yeah. it just makes me so laugh. that's all the kids and say, everyone hey, else. we're going to the
3: grocery store? Bet. Yeah, it doesn't work. Yeah, it yeah, just doesn't right. have the it's same appeal. It's kind of appeal. lame to use it that way. It's like when you tell me to use the ish, like I don't, I wouldn't say bet. He
0: wouldn't bet on the ish. All
1: right. last word since we're learning new words. And by the way, Hancock will use these for the next five years. So we got the riz, the bet, and
3: cap. What is cap? Cap is probably the most popular lingo nowadays. I don't know why it's called cap like a hat, but it just means lies. So you say ish is the most popular word that young guys are using now. That's cap. Because that's not true. Oh. Cap means not true. Ah.
2: So, oh my if gosh, I were we can say- use this in our work all the time, Cap. Yeah. I mean, people are yeah. full of it in our work. So, right. we have a lot of S- Cap happening.
1: So, if I were to say, look, the reason the Chiefs are losing is because Taylor Swift is showing up at
3: the games, I'd be like, oh man, Cap. Well, no. She is definitely driving the play <laughs> Travis to just be so focused on something other than football. So, Con
2: has strong opinions on football. Oh, man. He's actually trained my daughter to be a Vikings fan against the wishes of her grandparents, who are major Chiefs fans. So all of our holiday dinners, Barrett's yelling out, Vikings are the best. Chiefs lose. Vikings win. And my parents are losing it.
3: Well, and let me tell you, it wasn't hard considering the Vikings are the best team in the league. Oh, man, that's some cap there, bro. That's, <laughs> that's some cap. Hey, did I use it right there? I did. You did. You did not use bet right,
0: by the way. <laughs> I'm doing the best I can. Over All right,
1: here. so the real reason we, we came in earlier this week, if you listened to us during the Dave Glover show, we talked about ChatGPT. And mm-hmm. I know that you're not allowed to use it for school, and you made it clear to me that you don't use it for school. But John and I quizzed each other and said, hey, have you ever used ChatGPT? I've never used it. Um. But and so since then I've been going to events and asking people, "Hey, have you used ChatGPT?" The only people I run into that use ChatGPT
3: are young people. So, have you used ChatGPT? I have. What do you use it for? I use it for everything because ChatGPT is the future. It is artificial intelligence as it, as an you know AI, and it is just the newest thing. And you know, if you watch Terminator, you're like, "Oh, that's what's going to happen." Maybe it will, but by then it's too late anyway, so why not take advantage of it now?
1: So what kind of question could I ask ChatGPT
3: that I would use because it's the future? You could ask ChatGPT to create a fake scenario of future events if you want it to. Really? Mm-hmm. Could I ask it whether or
1: not bell-bottoms
3: are going to come back?
1: That's well, a t- they type are already of clothing. back in
3: style, actually. They uh, are.
1: But okay, but I mean would would ChatGPT
3: be able to say, oh yeah, you should save those because in the next two years they'll be back or what I mean. Yes, because it has the ability to go into every single piece of information that's on the internet right now. And even deeper, I don't know. But it can find out anything it wants to give you deep analysis of anything and just tell you what to do.
1: So there's hard and fast rules in schools as it relates to ChatGPT. So this is a major issue, huh? They're talking to you at school saying, hey, if you use
3: this, you'll automatically fail or be terminated or whatever. Yes, because it's so easy because with questions you can ask ChatGPT, one of them is like write a 20-page essay about whatever it is you're supposed to write about, and then that's what it is. And you just turn in the essay and you didn't do any work for it. So, and the teachers don't want that to happen, but that's not real. I feel like that's not very practical because ChatGPT is the future. So in, in the future, when we are working, we could just use chat GPT and we don't need to know anything.
0: Could you tell if uh, a document was created by chat GPT or, or the actual writer, let's say a teacher gets a paper and can they tell it's a chat GPT paper?
3: Well, not really. But my teachers like to brag about how they have the ability to it's clear they don't but I don't
2: know yeah. I think you can because I watched a whole um, video on how they can tell the certain cadence of language you know how mm-hmm. the way people speak is unique to Every individual, and remember, I mean, when we were in school, they were really concerned about plagiarism, and so I think that there's a comparison ability between previously written things, and yeah, that well, they can it, yes so, tell if it's a natural way that that person were to write or not.
0: Yes, if you've had the student and the students written a paper for you or more than right. one paper, and then they submit a Chat GPT, yeah, teacher will be able to spot that in a heartbeat. But if you're coming in cold. <clears throat> and the kid turns in a paper from ChatGPT. I don't know that the teacher's going to be able to
2: Have you ever seen the out. products that it's produced for political stuff? You know, yeah. I've seen yeah. yeah, like so people can say write me a bio yeah. about so and so. And I feel when you read those, you can kind of tell it doesn't quite it doesn't have that human element, I don't think, but well, maybe John, it's you... because you know it is not real. You
1: you your partner has yeah. used Chat GPT, oh, yeah. right yeah so could you talk to us through from your
0: business yeah so we do opposition research and so you know I think Chat GPT is probably going to put us out of business at some point in the not too distant future but uh, he was just messing around with it and ask it for everything Nikki Haley's ever said about guns mm-hmm. and uh, and it two seconds later you got this big you know document and Fortunately, for us, a lot of the information was wrong, right? Yeah, because like they
1: the, can't decipher what's true or what's just right. uh, conspiracy theory. yeah, and,
0: and and so, but I they're gonna refine that at some point uh-huh. and, and and I think there's another level of chat GBT that's more refined. you got to pay for it and so forth. It's not the free uh, you know open uh, software or whatever. All
1: right, Colin, we just got about a minute left to visit with you here. Uh young people in schools, you, are, are you all talking about what's going to happen? We have a presidential election coming up. I know you're not old enough yet, but is there discussion Are you are people
3: political at your age? Well, I think we're more focused on the finals that our teachers are were putting on us and yeah. So <laughs> yeah. We don't really talk about that much.
0: What's your favorite uh, subjects in school?
3: So you want to be a lawyer, so I'm going I'm guessing English, history, that sort of thing. Well, actually, that's my least favorite. Wow. Because Just because it's very boring. Yeah. I do like, oh, I'm taking AP World History and Chemistry. I love those classes. They're just very interesting. Yeah, okay. About the, like, combining formulas and matching terms and stuff. And Where's the school at? It's in the Central West End. It's not in the best location, uh, which is why we can't get very good funding for it, but yeah.
1: Yeah, and uh, do you play sports there?
3: I do cross-country basketball. And I'm very hard deciding between baseball and track. Really? I'm a a track star. You're a track star, huh? I love that. Hey, now. It's
2: right in the Central West End, close to the Basilica, and behind the the shopping center there, you know, that strip mall with the schnooks.
3: Is it considered a magnet school?
2: It's a public magnet school. A public
3: magnet school? Well, it is, like, academically, it is ranked the best in Missouri. It's true. So it is...
2: It's it a gifted public magnet yeah. school.
3: All right, you got a, you got ten seconds.
1: You got a shout out to anybody? Me. Yeah. <laughs> shout out to yourself. Yeah. Shout out, Colin Huff. You know he's he's the Riz. He's, he's a track star. He's got he's got some great Riz Trackstar about yourself.
2: Riz troublemaker yeah. at our house. Yeah.
1: buddy. Thanks for coming in.
2: Thank you, Michael. Happy Thanks, New John. Year, guys.
1: Happy New Year. Yeah. Hey, John, are you excited? Because we've got in studio probably the, the the single greatest expert that KMOX and CBS has to offer as it relates to military affairs.
0: Colonel Jeff McCausland, he's retired uh, U.S. Army colonel. What a decorated career he's had. Uh, he's been a university president. He was on the National Security Council of the United States. Uh, He's one of the foremost military analysts in the country, uh, and he works in that capacity for CBS News. And we're fortunate that he's in St. Louis uh, for the holidays. He's got family here. McCausland, you know, they got a street named after him out there. And and, And, uh, and he's going to be with us for a couple of segments. You bet. We're gonna we're gonna talk we're gonna talk about uh, what's happening in Ukraine, some of the implications of that, uh, also Israel and the seemingly expanding situation now uh, in in northern Israel. Uh, Jeff McCausland knows all of that and more, and I'm really excited to talk to him. And then uh, later in the hour, we're gonna break down. Uh, Going to look ahead into twenty twenty four, Michael. We
1: are, and you all are going to want to stick around because today at ten o'clock, normally when Amy and Chris come in, as you know, they haven't been working all week. Well, Chris has, in fairness to him, the goat will be in studio. Charlie Brennan returns back to the microphone. That made him the star that he is.
0: You won't want to miss any of that and more coming your way on this last weekday of 2023 here on KMOX. For the Friday edition of Hancock and Kelly. You two belong together. John Hancock, Michael Kelly on News Radio
1: 1120, KMOX. Hey, welcome back to KMOX, and we are joined in studio by one of the most incredible individuals I've ever met. He is the CBS News military analyst, Colonel Jeff McCausland. I call him the legend. He is the legend, Um, and he's—I think we believe him to be one of the smartest people that we know, John Hancock. Until he just told me he's a Cubs fan.
0: Well, that's—we can't all be perfect. Yeah,
4: I mean, you just—that—that one—is that your only weakness, Colonel? You know, Michelangelo always said when he made a painting. You always put one in perfection because that's only it. God was perfect. <laughs> that's so, right. so maybe that's well, it. Thank but you for know. being in town, being here today. You're in town because you have family here, I correct, sir? I do we're in town I have my, I have my three brothers here in the area, and so stopped off. We're in my wife and I were out to Hawaii on a vacation. So oh, nice. Yes, yeah, so we stopped off for a couple of days here to see family, and then we'll hook on to Hawaii on Saturday. And, and you grew up just north of here. The name yeah. of the town? Did grew up in a little town called Beardstown, Illinois, up on the Illinois River, about ninety miles due. And as I was like, like to say back to the Cubs, we we were a small group of Cubs fans living in this sea of Cardinal fans back right. then in the day.
1: Did you know KMOX when you were growing Did? up? Yeah,
4: oh yeah, we listened to KMOX all the time when it's kid. And of course, I I always tell folks you know that uh, I, at the time as a kid, I hated Harry Carey because back way back then he was the voice of the Cardinals. Yeah, Don't right? get that because of all the notoriety, he ended up going up to Chicago. Well, holy cow! Holy cow!
0: Uh, Colonel McCausland is CBS News military analyst and a good one. Uh, I feel like we've lost some focus on Ukraine in in light of everything that's happened in Gaza uh, since October. But the Ukraine situation is, well, they're in a very trying period now. Russia is continuing its assault on civilian facilities and uh, committing war crimes, in my opinion, on a daily basis. And the support of the funding of Ukraine that the United States has been, I think, pretty generous with to this point, as has Western Europe, is somewhat in question right now. Uh, first of all, where do things stand right now? We'll start there. Where do things stand right now in Ukraine?
4: Well, well, things stand right now pretty much at a stalemate. And even the Ukrainians kind of admit that. They began this counteroffensive in June with a lot of Western military hardware we provided. There was great hope they might achieve some kind of a breakthrough. That has not happened. Mm -hmm. They had some modest success. Uh, They have, in fact, over time, recovered about half of the territory the Russians initially took at the onset of this particular war. In the last few months, the Russians actually have gained a small bit of territory, so on balance, uh, that's where things stand. Obviously, the winter is coming on. Conducting major combat operations in the wintertime is very difficult. And both sides have depleted a large portion of their force. I mean, imagine... On the Russian side, there are estimates that 90% of the soldiers who invaded Ukraine in two years ago— and That was, what, 300,000 plus? Right. —have been killed or injured. 90% of that force is gone. Okay. They, they have lost, estimates by the British intelligence, 320,000 casualties, probably 120,000 of those dead. 2,300 tanks, 4,000 armored personnel carriers, all destroyed— in this war so far. Ukrainians suffered uh, grievous casualties as well, a smaller country, probably half that at least, so they're they're having their own issues. Um, But you're quite right, again, the Russians now seem to have changing their strategy towards more intensive missile and drone attacks. Overnight, we had really the largest missile and drone attack on Ukraine since the war began. They fired 122 missiles and 96 drones at different targets across Ukraine, and more and more they're trying to target Ukrainian infrastructure. Uh, particularly the energy system, to make Ukraine as cold as possible as it can for the wintertime. Their goal being to break, they think, the will of the Ukrainian people. As they depend on those aerial assaults, this has been more and more indiscriminate. And we see Russian missile attacks against apartments and hospitals and schools. Uh, They even actually conduct so-called two-tap attacks. And what a two-tap attack is, you'll fire a missile at a a a set of apartment buildings. Then you'll wait 45 minutes and you'll fire a second missile. Why do you do that? Well, 45 minutes is about the time it takes for all the first responders, the firemen, the hospital people to show up after the first attack. So we take them out with the second attack. Uh, And as a consequence, estimates are probably 25,000 or more Ukrainian civilians, elderly women, children have been killed in this particular conflict. On the Ukrainian side, they actually have had, I think, significant success that isn't talked about, but it's frankly in the naval area. Which is odd for a country that doesn't have a Navy, for goodness sake. Early on, they sank the flagship of the Black Sea Fleet, the Moskva. But in the last couple of days, they just sank a major uh, amphibious ship, apparently loaded with drones and explosives because there was tremendous secondary explosions when that thing was hit. Uh, And as a consequence, using longer-range fires, missiles, uh, spec ops attacks, and stuff like that, they have made life pretty miserable for the uh, Russian Navy in Crimea, which is where the Black Sea Fleet was always... Always based in Sevastopol, Russians having captured that in 2014. So more and more, Russia is moving its fleet farther to the east, and not being able to use this fleet, which it had in past, to launch missile attacks uh, against uh, targets uh, in Ukraine. And the Ukrainians have also been able to open up a narrow corridor, so they can export grain out of the right. Black Sea, which is very important for them yeah. economically.
0: Uh, is there any intelligence that's public uh, on the morale situation of the Russian? Military force. I would have to imagine they're having serious morale issues.
4: There's all there. there are anecdotal things. The Russians keep a pretty tight lid on this. What I, What I find is, you know, people ask me. I said, let's, you know, the. Uh, uh, it's It's very hard to measure subjective, right? Object. How many tanks? How many people get killed? You can measure that. Subjective. So I always look at a couple things lately. There's been a, a growing movement in Russia uh, by an organization which is uh, populated by the wives and mothers of soldiers. Yeah. And they're starting to demonstrate about, where is my son? Because they don't know what happened. And 100,000 of them are dead. dead. And the Russians leave the bodies on the field. They do not recover their dead, in many cases. This is really a problem for Mr. Putin. Uh, You know, I can beat up on a bunch of college kids who demonstrate, and they do. A young woman uh, was interviewed the other day who escaped Lithuania. Her crime was she had posted some bills at her university saying that this was a Russia should get out of this war. And for posting those bills... Uh, she was brought forth on trial, and she was facing 10 years in prison just for putting up a wow. handbill. Okay? So that's the Russian side. On the Ukrainian side, there was a large-scale demonstration the other day in Kiev, uh, mostly by women, elderly, and whatever. And what they were demonstrating against was the the government of Kiev saying to them, we don't want you to spend money on fixing the roads. We don't want you to spend money on parks. We don't we want you to spend the money on the war." Quit spending money on us. Spend money on the war. Wow, that tells you something. So I look at two different, you know, these people over here are demonstrating, where's my son? And these people are saying, no, no, please spend all the money on the war. And I'm saying, which side, at least in terms of morale, is at a higher pitch? And, you know, way back when Napoleon Bonaparte once said, the moral is to the physical is three is to one. Yeah. Does that mean Ukraine's going to win for sure? No, it doesn't necessarily mean that at all. Uh, but it certainly, I think, means that they, are, I think, will continue to fight on, uh, despite what we, the United States, do or don't do.
0: So I wanted to go back. But
1: before, oh, are we yeah. going to exit Ukraine? Because I had one more question. How's this end, Colonel? What when? <laughs> does it
4: go on for five years? Or I mean, how does this end? That's the sixty-four dollar question. Yeah. Um, how does this end? Well, we know it. If you're a Ukrainian, uh, this war began in 2014. Yes. This war began in 2014 with the invasion of the Donbass and the invasion of Crimea. And then it went into kind of a frozen conflict, you know, you know, uh, sporadic negotiations, sporadic ceasefires followed by intermittent violence. You could end up in that kind of a frozen conflict. That's that's a possibility. One side or the other could have a major success, you know. You could, the Russian army uh, could collapse. Uh, they did that in, 19, uh, in 1918. And they just said, the heck, well, they went home, you know, and the morale of the Russian army is... Is pretty low. I'm not predicting that, but that's, that's a possibility. Or they could do a major breakthrough and and the Ukrainians um, could collapse. That's a possibility. So you can have some kind of a negotiation. Right. Okay. Uh, neither side seems inclined. There are some suggestions. Putin says, yeah, he might want to negotiate. But his conditions have always been, we'll negotiate when Ukraine recognizes these four provinces are Russian. And they cease receiving any aid from the West. In other words, when you surrender, we'll negotiate. Right. Okay, well that's not going to work. Right. And on the Ukrainian side, Zelensky, I think for you know reasons at home, has been very adamant. That we will resecure all of the territory we have lost,
1: including Crimea, including
4: Crimea and Donbas. So those that's pretty ain't much room there to negotiate. And then last but not least, and this is something we always need to keep an eye on, is this thing escalates. And it becomes a confrontation between the West and 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 uh, and Russia. I mean, more and more, if you listen to Russian propaganda on on TV and radio, or you listen to speeches by Lavrov, the foreign minister, or speeches by the defense minister, or Putin, they talk about this as this is a war with the West. They don't talk about it as a war with Ukraine. This is a war with the West, with the West, and they say that over and over. And so, the possibility of something happening. Plane flies the wrong way and gets shot down. Two ships collide in the middle of the Black Sea. Something goes like that. And and then you have the possibility of that kind of escalation.
0: I wanted to go back to 2014 and uh, when when Crimea was invaded and and seized by the Russians, the United States really didn't engage at all at that time. Was that, A, was that a mistake by the United States in in terms of foreign policy? Or, B, was the situation with the Ukrainian government at that time – Prohibitive for our, our involvement.
4: Well, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking is always 2020. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on balance, you might say it was. I would cast it more broadly in that we didn't respond to a whole bunch of things. Don't forget the Russians invade Georgia in 2008. Yep. What did the West do? Nothing. And they still occupy two places, South Ossetia and Transnistria. The Russians interfered in Brexit yep. uh, on the side of trying to get the UK out of the EU. Uh, the Russians killed several people in the United Kingdom using Novacek and gas, right. and were caught red-handed at doing that. The Russians interfered in the American elections 2016. What do we do? Nothing. Mm-hmm. And in the midst of that, 2014, they invade Crimea, and we don't respond. In a and,
0: Syria. They, they and Syria. They injected right. themselves into that conflict.
4: Right. So we basically are saying to Putin, you can get away with this, and we are not going to respond. Yeah, there will be some, you know, some rhetoric, but very little will happen. The problem in 2014, on retrospect, should we have responded more vigorously? Probably yes. Yeah. But you're quite right. At that time, you had this revolution going on in Ukraine. Uh, a a uh, president of Ukraine who had largely been installed by Moscow, yep. he was fleeing the country. There was a lot of turmoil. Now, that's so- the
0: guy that, that Paul Manafort was working exactly. with. Exactly. Yeah. That's the guy.
4: Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the guy. Yeah. Um, who's holed up in Moscow with all kinds of money. Yeah. Um, so it's difficult who who you who are you going to support right okay, and there was no real Ukrainian army as such mm-hmm. okay uh, so that made it very, very difficult for the Obama people to do that, but on retrospect, should we have responded more vigorously just to kind of convince Mr Putin that that you can't do these yeah, things. These are off. violations of international norms, and as a consequence, there will be a major response. Colonel Jeff
0: McCausland, CBS News military analyst. Stick around for another segment, Colonel. Can do. Love it. When we come back, Israel, Gaza. What's happening there? That's next on KMOX. Now back to Hancock and Kelly, sponsored by Inspirity. HR that makes a difference on News Radio 1120 KMOX.
1: Hey, welcome back to the Hancock and Kelly Show. Boy, we are honored to be joined in studio by uh, Colonel Jeff McCausland. This is
0: this is better than Christmas for me. Yeah, it
1: really is (laughs) spectacular. And Colonel, uh, it's it's so much going on in our world. I hate that we've got to transition to another conflict. Uh, But in October, we saw the terrorist attack that took place on Israel. Uh, We've since seen, you know, Israel's response there. Sure seems to be overwhelming.
4: Yeah, well, it certainly does in many ways. And I think the important thing to keep in mind is that uh, the use of military force is a means to an end. It is not an end state. And you use military force to shape the future that you want. You would think that the future would want, it would be a stable situation whereby there's a chance for some kind of a political arrangement that would bring on then long-term peace and security. Uh, But with the application of violence, as the Israelis have done so far... By estimates this morning, from the uh, Palestinian Health Organization, 21,000 Palestinians have been killed, 52,000 or more injured. Infrastructure in Gaza is totally decimated, and we're not very close at all this thing coming to a close. So what does it look like in the aftermath? And are you actually setting conditions for that peace and security in the future? I spent a lot of time in Israel with the Israeli military, and I think this sadly bespeaks of their attitude longer term. This is the fourth war that Israel has fought with Hamas in the last 15, 20 years. And when I talked to Israeli military officers in the past, I would say to them, what, what, what's the end state you're trying to shape here? What's the end state you're trying to shape here? And this one guy finally said to me, he said, Ah," oh, he said to me, you're just like my wife. My wife asks me that all the time. And I say to her, you know, living in <laughs> Israel is a nice place. It's a lovely place. You have a nice home. And If you have a nice home, every once in a while, you have to mow the grass. So dealing with Hamas is like mowing the grass. And that's exactly a phrase the Israeli military would use. In other words, every couple of years, we got to go down there and 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 do this. And then we buy a couple more years of peace and security, and we're going to do it over and over again. Well, this one has been such a size, it yeah, ain't going to work anymore. This
1: one seems to be different. Anyway. And Netanyahu uh, has got his own political issues that he's dealing with in-state. Really? Uh, and then, you know, the conflict could expand, yes. and that's what's the most fearful thing for the United States. Can Netanyahu bring this to an end?
4: He can bring it perhaps to an end in terms of violence by, you know, the decimation of this place. He just wrote a, a uh, editorial in the Wall Street Journal, and he said, you know, we have three objectives. One is to end the Hamas rule in the God Strip, basically destroy Hamas. Second, demilitarize the Gaza Strip. And then, thirdly, de radicalize the entire population. Well, good luck with that. Exactly right. Exactly right. I mean, we tried that. Even Uh if you uh, can destroy Hamas, which I think is problematical because I think some other group will just take up the mantle, whether it's Islamic Jihad or somebody else. Uh, Now you've got 2 million people in a devastated area, and you, you got it. You know, it's the pottery bond. You broke it, you bought it. Okay. Our rule of thumb in Iraq and Afghanistan was somewhere between 5 to 20 soldiers per thousand, if you were going just to control the population. You're not going to make life any better. You're just going to kind of keep this at at a simmer, okay? Well, do the math. 2 million people, 5 to 20. That means the Israeli army better be prepared to put 50,000 troops in the Gaza Strip and leave them there uh, as an occupation force. I spent a lot of time with the Brits who occupied Northern Ireland in 1968. Did that till 1993. And I once asked a Brit, what have you accomplished by that use of all that military force? His reply was, we now have an acceptable level of violence. It's huh. no better than yeah. it was in 68, but so that's the situation the Israelis, I fear, are heading for. If you want to call that win.
0: So my concern, and I've been somewhat pleasantly surprised that this thing hasn't escalated beyond Gaza. But now you're starting to see Hezbollah to the north getting more active. Yeah. Uh, certainly, the the Houthi rebels and all of these little satellites that Iran controls are actively sending out drones against our ships and commercial ships in the in the region. Uh, expansion of this thing is still a real threat, isn't it?
4: Absolutely. And the defense minister Gallant the other day said, you know, Israel faced a multi arena, multi front war, seven different fronts. You got Gaza, you've got Lebanon, Hezbollah. You mentioned you got Syria, and they've done a number of yeah. airstrikes. did an airstrike a couple days ago and killed a senior Iraqi Quds Force general who was coordinating assistance to Hezbollah, who was in, in Syria. You've got Israel itself. There's been widespread violence, not talked about a lot, on the West Bank. Over 400, I believe, Palestinians have been killed on the West Bank. Over 2,000 have been detained on the West Bank in, in major violence on, on the West Bank. You've got Iraq, who have been launching—groups in Iraq have been launching drones towards Israel— and, oh, by the way, uh, our forces in Iraq and Syria have been hit 100 times yeah. uh, since this began. Uh, and the 2,500 soldiers we have in Iraq and the 900 we have in Syria have nothing whatsoever to do with the war in the Gaza Strip. Their presence is as a force to root out the last elements of ISIS. That's why they're there. It nothing to do with this at all. And then, of course, you have Iran and Yemen. So they have all these different fronts, any one of which— something goes really badly, the whole situation kind of goes pear shape. One can only imagine we had three GIs got wounded, one critically in the most recent attack uh, in Iraq. Well, if, if you had a strike on a U.S. base in Iraq or Syria, and, and say 20 or 30, God help us, uh, GIs were killed or wounded, well, we in the United States are going to respond in a big way. And we now have two carrier battle right. groups. One, the Ike operating down in the Arabian Sea, and the Gerald Ford operating off the coast of the Mediterranean. So we got a lot of firepower out in that particular region. So this really is a, a very, very tense situation uh, in terms of that possibility. And the Israelis themselves have said this war will go on for months and months to come.
0: Got about a minute in this yeah, segment. Uh, how coordinated is Iran uh, and Russia and China?
4: Well, certainly the, the, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and right. they've kind of adopted that. Uh, they certainly provide military assistance. The Iranians provide an awful lot of drones. Uh, in terms of the Russians orchestrating and encouraging them to do very specific things in the Gaza region or in the Middle East, I think probably not. They're happy that they're causing us trouble. Right. They're happy that they can portray, and they do, that the United States is really an aggressor in the Middle East. And they try to appeal to the global south. The Russians do that in that regard. The Chinese, uh, I think, on, are providing certainly a, a certain amount of assistance to the Russians. They buy a lot of Russian oil at mm-hmm. discounted prices, mm-hmm. though, by the way. Um, But they have not seen evidence of them providing large-scale military assistance. Look, witness the fact Mr. Putin had to go to North Korea to buy artillery rounds. So they're kind of this uh, axis of of opportunity. I think in many ways that they're trying to exercise to thwart U.S. policy in the region and around the world.
0: Colonel Jeff McCausland, we need to step aside for the news one more segment, Colonel. Sure. Oh, you're the best. Uh, the news is next on KMOX. Hi, this is Bob Costa's
3: proud KMOX alum and from my family to yours, happy holidays.
0: Happy holidays from KMOX.
1: Hey, welcome back to the Hancock and Kelly show and right back to visiting with Colonel Jeff McCausland, CBS News military analyst. Boy, Colonel, with just not enough time to get in everything that's going on in our world. Uh, we've got the conflict in Ukraine. We've got the conflict in Israel. And one of the things experts like you and I have been telling us for a while is keep our eyes on China, potentially with Taiwan. Is that still one of the major threats out there?
4: A- absolutely. And we're going to see that come, I think, perhaps um, to a boil here very soon because on the 14th of January, I think that's correct, are the Taiwanese presidential elections. And people are not paying attention. this watch the, Chinese, the Taiwanese presidential elections. The leading candidate right now, there are three candidates, the leading candidate right now, has at times talked about, you know, Taiwan independence. And there's no doubt that the Beijing, the Communist Party, is very opposed to him getting elected. They've mounted a very strong disinformation campaign. They've tried to describe the choice as between war and peace in terms of this particular election. So if he's elected, my guess is we're going to see some kind of a crisis, perhaps not unlike when Ms. Pelosi, if you remember back about a year and a half ago, went out to Taiwan and we saw major military exercises around Taiwan, the Chinese firing all kinds of missiles and all that kind of stuff. You could see that type of an event transpire. And every time that kind of thing happens, then then you have the possibility of something going wrong and, and things getting more and more difficult. So that, to me, is the big concern at the moment. In terms of the imminent invasion or attack on Taiwan, frankly, I don't see that. Uh, We have not seen any marshalling, you know, immediate marshalling of amphibious craft and the collect that you'd need for a major invasion. And invading Taiwan, amphibious operation at that distance is the toughest military operation you could do. Okay? In the
0: late 1990s, uh, you were dean of the War College. You were summoned to Washington, D.C. to serve on the National Security Council during the Kosovo conflict. Yeah. so, reminisce a little bit about that time, and then yeah. I want to talk about the NSC and the kind of stuff they're dealing with right now.
4: Yeah, I, I was. I was upon the NSC staff. I was working in defense policy and arms control directorate of the NSC staff. The Kosovo crisis opened up, occurred. Uh, and the way they do that, you know, they, they'll they'll create an international working group. And they'll bring together a bunch of people from across all kinds of directorates. And so I was part of the Kosovo task force. Um our concern there, in many ways, was not unlike the concern right now. Uh, Kosovo will go down in history as kind of a footnote. But there was grave concern that this could go r- really bad, uh, particularly when we dealing with the Russians. Uh, at the time, in fact, when the crisis began, then the president of the Russian Federation, I forget his name, was en route to Washington to secure greater loans from the International Monetary Fund because mm-hmm. Russia was suffering big-time economic problems. And he just turned his plane u turned over the Atlantic and went home. Uh, And we had all kinds of issues with the Russians. People forget at the end of that conflict, the Russians quickly moved a brigade that was in Bosnia as part of that peacekeeping operation and occupied an airfield in Kosovo outside Pristina. And we had a mini confrontation for a moment between Russian forces and NATO forces. That all kind of worked out, but it could have went very, very badly. The Russians supporting Serbia, which was kind of an ally and client Uh, So the fact that these things can move, escalate very rapidly, and the value of NATO. Uh, NATO was celebrating at the time its 50th anniversary. It was supposed to have a big celebration in Washington. Well, that became then a war council. And the other thing I I learned from that was, you know, it all looks great, the public face, that we're all together. But I got to tell you, behind the scenes, working at keeping everybody heading in the same direction. At the time, I think we only had 20 countries or so in NATO. So I give high marks to the Biden people. People might disagree with that, but over the last two years, that they've kept 30 countries kind of all publicly heading in the same direction. Trust me, from having worked that problem, that is not easy at all. Everybody's got their own little individual agenda. Just. Check out Mr. Erdogan in Turkey, and, and the, and the <laughs> National
0: Security Council, um, fairly new in American history, you know, yep. and it's it's really a, a coordinating in, institution, right? And you've got so the Defense Department, the State Department, all of the all yep. of those. You got the the heads of the Army, Navy, and all of those folks yep. is, are synthesized through the NSC. Is that how it works? That's
4: Exactly right. What you do is I would chair meetings of the NSC on the issues that I was responsible for. And we'd be at a conference room table or a VTC. And I'd have a rep from the chairman of the Joint Chief Staff Office, a rep from the Office of Secretary of Defense, a CIA guy, mm. somebody from the State Department, uh, somebody from the Arms Control Bureau because I was working on arms control issues, occasionally somebody from justice if there were legal issues. And our uh, we had to had to come up in what was policy going to be, okay, and, and hammer that out inside the United States. And, and then um, – make sure everybody knew what they're part of the overall policy state's going to do this, osd's going to do that, jcs going to do that. And then the other thing I found out you had to make sure make sure they do it. That's <laughs> the other thing you got to make sure they do it. And then you negotiate, but then the problem with an event like this or kosovo, you get the us policy, okay? Yeah. And that's hard to come together. And then you got to go to nato and get everybody on the nato side to agree yeah. before you get overall policy.
0: How uh, how much threat is NATO under based on this next election in the U.S.? Enormous.
4: I mean, I, I think enormous threat. I think, I think Mr. Putin firmly believes his willpower is stronger than ours, and he can wait us out. And by the statements of Mr. Trump, by the statements of people around him, John Bolton, his national security advisor, has said publicly repeated times that he is convinced Trump would pull us out of NATO if he's reelected and said he talked him out of it on numerous occasions. So Putin says, hey— I can wait this one out. And my real victory here, my real victory is not just securing Ukraine. My victory is the destruction of NATO.
0: So uh, I one more for me, Michael. Oh, keep going. Right. <laughs> I'm enjoying it. Uh, this divide, I'm a Republican. Mm-hmm. And Sorry. this divide that I'm living through right now in my party between the folks that believe that the United States needs to be an active participant in world affairs and the dominant force in world affairs. Used to, that was the... Reagan. That was 100 percent. But this is growing and it's not unique to Donald Trump. It really started. You go back to the Rand Paul uh, in his kind of approach to and Isolationism is probably too simplistic a word for it. But this this retreat to our border both militarily and economically. And you look at some of the, the the trade policies that are being advocated by a lot of Republicans yep. where we're going to put these massive taxes or tariffs on foreign products to, that come to this country and then start manufacturing stuff here again. Uh, you know, a lot of that has very popular rhetoric with a lot of people. But that divide is not new in American history. We've been through this before.
4: Yeah. That's exactly right. And we see, it's to me, a very interesting split when you watch these debates. for The Republican Party, you have Chris Christie and you have Ms. Haley, who are more of the traditional Reagan, peace through strength. The United States is involved around the world. Then you have Governor DeSantis and you have Raman Swamy, uh, who are more about this. No, no, mm-hmm. no. Let's let's do that. Somehow, I don't know how you, eventually the party has got to figure out not only who the candidate is, but this is a major issue for the United States, what we're all about. Right. Okay. <laughs> Um, and if you go back on our history, I always point go back to the 1930s. In the 1930s, there was a movement called the American Firsters movement. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting. That was the name wow. of American Firsters. The leader of the American Firsters movement was right here from St. Louis, Charles Lindbergh. Charles Lindbergh was the leader of the American First. and they were totally opposed to any U.S. military assistance to the Brits or to the Chinese uh, in opposing Hitler prior to the entry of the United States in 1941. On the evening of December seventh, nineteen forty-one, there was an American Firsters rally scheduled to occur at Soldier's Field in Chicago. And they had nine hundred thousand members across the country. So they played this big rally opposing U.S. military assistance around the world. That event was canceled that night, but that's how close it came. And it was largely a Republican-led. Movement opposing Franklin Roosevelt and and Lee. and and, and, and vestiges
0: of that. I mean, you go yeah. back to the to the Taft Eisenhower squabbles in the fifties, exactly. uh, largely over this very issue. So this is not a new debate, uh, but it's a very real debate that has very real consequences.
4: Yeah, and you, you look at things like the military aid to Ukraine, which to me, if you look in the aggregate, I know you know we've given them one hundred thirteen billion dollars over three or four years, and the greater aggregate that that is. <clears throat> That is less that's that's a tiny portion of our defense. And it's
0: decimated the Russian army military. And, de-
4: and furthermore, of the hundred and thirteen billion, about seventy-seven billion of that military assistance never left the United States. It never left the United States. Where did it go? Well it went to it went to Raytheon, it went yeah. to General Dynamics, it went to you know, and, and there are many, many of those companies and many workers who are now very happily working overtime and double overtime and building more factories and and all that money is actually coming into the United States, and we have not had to send one American soldier.
1: So before we let you go, you've spent time in the most secretive of spaces. Now your job is to (laughs) analyze it and keep an eye on it. Um, You've lived through some crazy stuff. Are you scared or optimistic as we move forward?
4: Both. (laughs) On the one hand, I am concerned that these two conflicts could, by a whole host reason, we talked about it, go parachute number one. I'm concerned about my country that is polarized and may walk away from world leadership, which has provided us enormous amount. So I'm worried about that. I'm optimistic because I still have a lot of trust and faith and confidence in the American people, really. And I teach at a small college, so I interact with a lot of, of young you know, college kids, Gen Z, and we, we beat up on them. But, <laughs> but they're actually a great bunch of kids. And they're intensely optimistic, and they, uh, I think, have good heads on their shoulders. So that makes me optimistic. Perfect.
0: He is Colonel Jeff McCausland, and it's such an honor to have him in studio with us today. I call him a legend, you know. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm only doing that because it gets your brothers going. They get, they're in the they control, control room. <laughs> they can't. They can't take it anymore. <laughs> uh, Michael, I're going to come back. We're going to peek ahead to 2024, and then turn this over to Charlie Brennan, who's coming back oh. to do three hours right here on the Voice of St. Louis, Game OX.
3: The voice of St. Louis, news that matters to you, KMOX.
1: Well, how fun was that? That was the best. You know, that one of the treats of uh, getting to be here at KMOX is you have people Resources, like that yeah. who come into St. Louis. Um, yeah, we
0: visit with Colonel McCausland regularly, but he doesn't live here. His family lives here. Uh, but when he does come over the holidays, he's very kind to be in studio uh, with us and, and um, uh, what a wealth of knowledge and information!
1: Hey, exciting night tonight. Our Missouri Tigers yeah. are playing in the bowl against the Ohio State the down bowl. at Jerry World in Dallas, Texas. Uh, your thoughts? You think we can win this?
0: Oh, I think we will win it. Uh, it's interesting, you know. Ohio State's—we're uh, not sure which of their players are going to actually play in the game. This is a kind of a disappointment bowl for Ohio State. They expected to be in the playoffs. And for Mizzou, this is the Super Bowl.
1: Yeah.
0: And, but you, here's my one worry about this game. The, uh, Mizzou now probably feels like they have to win. I think they're maybe in in the odds, they're favored to win this game now. Well, two days ago they were. Ohio State was yesterday. I think it's going back and forth. Uh, and so you just wonder if that all of that intense, whereas Ohio State's going to be footloose and fancy free. They don't care. Right. And, um, that could have a negative effect on us. I don't think it will, but that's the one concern I so,
1: have. So two things. Number one, I hope they win. I'm a Missourian. I want the Mizzou to win. Yep. I, I really want us to win for Coach Drinkowitz. Uh, I think this guy has – it's really remarkable what he's been able to do in terms of building back recruiting from the state. Yeah, uh, he, he He's been able to retain talent here. I think this continues to give him a platform. Of course, we all know as SEC – Uh, participants that Georgia and Alabama are going to, for the large point, going to mop up most of the talent. But Missouri's now in that discussion, and Drinkowitz has put us in there
0: in terms of being able to say, hey, if you don't make it to the Alabama team, take a look at Mizzou. We play them. Just got a very talented offensive lineman out of Oklahoma. Uh, through the transfer portal that's coming to Mizzou next season, and you're going to have back next year Luther Burden the third is coming back, and and, Brady, and the, the Brady Cook the quarterback is coming back. So the the pieces are, are there for Mizzou for next season to do even better than the ten and two record they put up this year.
1: Changing subjects to our St. Louis Blues, boy, if you're a coach and you go through a losing streak here with the Blues, do we now have a recipe where we fire a coach and this team gets on fire?
0: <laughs> it's really kind of remarkable, and hockey's like. Like this, generally, it's unlike any other sport. So the basic, the average tenure of a, of a NHL head coach is about three and a half, four years. And if you look at our history, that's kind of Berube was here that long. And when Mike Yo was fired in in twenty eighteen, Berube took over a team that was at one point in last place. And under the new coach, it things just turned around, and they took off, and they had this incredible run through the playoffs, four rounds of playoffs, and they won them all. They won the Stanley Cup that year. Now, I'm not saying this team's going to win the Stanley Cup, but they had lost four of five. Baruby gets fired. And they bring in a new head coach, and they're playing tough teams. We lost to some dogs so the, the very end of the Baruby year. I mean, we lost to the Blackhawks. Uh, there were a couple of dogs in there that, that beat us, and we're playing good teams right now, and, and we're beating them. Dallas, a very good team that we beat, and and they're 5-1 and one under the new coach, Drew Bannister, and, you know, it's got me wondering, anyway. Uh, is this going to be well, a repeat? Although I don't think this team has the talent that that team in 2018, well, I hope he does. 19, I hope
1: Drew can put it together and then uh, hold on to your uh, shorts, there, Drew, because uh, when things go south, we may have a recipe. Yeah, um, our St. Louis Cardinals. I guess we had an okay off season to this point. You know, I think people have been.
0: I think people have not given enough credit to what the Cardinals have actually done here, and uh, they make the had, case. They had a massive hole in their starting rotation. Uh, and, I mean, you're looking at, you know, before they made these moves in November, you're looking at a starting rotation that contained probably Dakota Hudson. <laughs> and, and by signing who they signed, and they, they signed Gibson, uh, the, the pitcher out of Baltimore, and, of course, bringing back Lance Lynn. And then the premier piece of that was Sonny Gray. Those are three quality starters that are going to go deep into games. You still got Miles Michaelis. You got Steven Match, who was very good when he came back from injury last year uh, to fill out that starting five. And there's Logan, uh, what's his name? Uh, Thompson, uh, Zach Thompson, who's uh, a potential starter out there for the Cardinals, still there. There's a little bit of depth on this rotation. They may not be done yet with their starting rotation. I do think they need one late inning bullpen arm at least. But the pitching staff is going to be better. And the bullpen, I mean, the, the, the offense of this team, depending on what they do, if they have to trade a Nolan Gorman, for example, is going to be an issue. But right now, as situated, the offense is good enough to compete with the big boys. Well,
1: it seems like our farm system and uh, uh, the, the minor leagues have been really good at generating ball players who can hit the ball, et cetera. Uh, you know, when we think back to the Adam Wainwright days and stuff, when we had some really good pitching talent that's coming out, but that's lacked as of recently. Well, Heard John mozalock say that's where he's going to be spending a lot of attention over the next I year. I mean,
0: we've traded a Cy Young Award winner in Sandy Alcantara. We traded him for Marcelo Zuna. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, who was the other? Zach... Um, uh, Zach Gallen that we traded as well, who's a very frontline ace of a top of the rotation starter. So the organization has produced good starters. We've just traded them.
1: Yeah, no doubt about it. So you can keep it tuned to KMOX. Of course, we're going to continue to have the countdown to opening day uh, specials that are happening with Matt Pauley and Mike Claves. Uh, it's not too much longer that we'll be having the winter warm-up here in downtown St. Louis. You'll be able to hear all that activity right here on X. And can you believe that it's at the end of February that spring training starts and we start this process all over again and hopefully these Cardinals can get back
0: on the horse? And not too far behind that... <laughs> Believe it or not, the MLS season starts, and you have this team here, St. Louis City SC, that won the Western Conference this year. Didn't do too well in the playoffs, but they won the they won the conference, the first expansion team in the history of that of that uh, league ever to do that. Uh, they're going to be kicking off a brand new season along uh, about February, March as well, and. Do you expect St. Louis City SC to meet with the same kind of success next year?
1: Absolutely.
0: They need to be first place every year now. Well, They've
1: set the tone. That's, that's the way
0: it's got to be. Yeah, I'm a little concerned about that. Well,
1: I know that they will not be short on fans. I, I liken the fans of the SC team to the Blues fans. And the Blues fans were long-suffering, but yes. they showed up game in, game out. You'll never meet more loyal fans than the St. Louis Blues fans. And I think... We've got that same type of brand of fan going on right now with City.
0: Yeah, it's a very passionate fan base. There's no question about it. They fill the place up all the time. Um, you know, and the Blues are a, a great example of a franchise that would just break your heart year after year after year. They had oh, some very oh, good teams. That John Hancock, break heart. walking
1: oh. into the studio right now hey, hey, is hey, hey, the hey. GOAT
0: of KMOX. I, I can't I can't even he believe my eyes.
1: Yeah, it's Charlie Brennan. What you know, in the world? My dad used to use the term GOAT to mean a guy who was like a player on a field who didn't do well. Right. Right. Like he dropped the ball. Oh, he's
0: the
4: GOAT.
1: Yes, that's <laughs> right. It's changed. Happy it New Year, changed. pal. Happy New Year to you guys. Too. Do you want to hang for a segment in the ten o'clock hour? Or must you go? Oh, yeah, oh, we're happy Count to. to. Okay, okay. Count okay. Set.
0: How about one quarter hour of your you, life? You got it. Okay. Well, there it is, ladies and you.
1: gentlemen. He's John Hancock. I'm Michael Kelly. Don't forget, you can see us on Sunday morning at eight thirty on Fox Two for Hancock and Kelly, the television show. Hey, you're not missing much. Come on, <laughs> and we will be back here in the new year, and we'll be sticking around with uh, the goat of KMOX. <laughs> Folks, you're in for a treat. Charlie Brennan.
0: uh, It's been far too long since the dulcet tones of Charles Brennan have hosted a program here on KMOX, but it's going to happen today on the 29th of December, 2023. Charlie Brennan next, after the news on KMOX.